Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. And hello, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, March 16th, 2017. Although you wouldn't know it out here in northern Florida, where this morning's low temperature was somewhere around 33 degrees or, or lower, depending upon where you were. Good afternoon to those in the western time zones, and good evening to those in the east. Happy St. Patty's Day. Follow the instructions you received when you called in in order to show up on my studio board that you're waiting with a question. I'm joined tonight by my friend, California lawyer Charles Marshall, and my other friend, California attorney Patricia Rodriguez, who joins me again tonight to help field your questions. And we'll get to Patricia and Charles in a moment. Uh, First, a little bit of news. Uh, You can see my blog from today and the one being published tomorrow. Uh, Both involve PennyMac, but you could just fill in X instead of PennyMac because the... uh, uh, the method, the mode, the model that's being followed there is a universal pattern. Um, in the um, in in one of my blogs, um, I point out that there is such a thing as a Bailey letter. Uh, bailment is something you can go look up, but basically it's I'm giving you this thing and you are now, in essence, a trustee subject to my direct instructions. In the Bailey letter that is sent by, uh, in this case, Penny Mac to uh, uh, the law firm, in preparation for foreclosure, two things are immediately revealed. First, the uh, prior denials of there being any trust uh, involved or any claims of a trust involved is put to rest by Penny Mac's letter, which says that the law firm have to send a copy of the signed letter 
to Deutsche Bank, who never appeared anywhere in the chain. Uh, City appeared, and PennyMac appeared, but not Deutsche. And the other thing that is revealed in the Bailey letter, which is very oddly worded, and you can see it on my blog, is that they instruct the law firm to input or upload data into LPS Desktop, which for those of you who might not be aware, LPS is uh, Lender Processing Services in Jacksonville, now known as Black Knight. And the instruction basically proves a point that I have been or corroborates a point that I have been making for many years, which is that LPS is the hub of most of these foreclosures. It's LPS that actually uh, creates, keeps, and maintains the records. It's LPS that produces the so-called payment history. Um, off of several platforms. So you've got two entities that are introduced, and if in fact LPS is the party that is uh, uh, maintaining the records, then the robo-witness for the servicer that comes in and says, this is a summary of the records of, let's say, Aquin, um, they are not telling the truth, although in some cases they may not even know that they're not telling the truth. The the records are actually coming from LPS, and the proper foundation for that testimony would be uh, by bringing in a witness from LPS. Otherwise, the, the written records are all hearsay by definition. They're written records. They're not a person that can be uh, cross-examined. And they don't fulfill the requirements for uh, an exemption from the hearsay rule uh, under business records. The other thing that I just want to do highlight uh, uh, before we go on is a decision in Florida, Penny Mac versus Frost. Basically what happened is a trial court entered an involuntary dismissal of the foreclosure uh, based upon standing, and Penny Mac appealed to a three-judge panel in the 4th District Court of Appeal in Florida, and Penny Mac won. And then Frost filed a motion for rehearing on bank, which means the full court, and Frost won, which is to say that the 4th District Court of Appeal reversed the 4th District Court of Appeal opinion and essentially said that the prima facie case was not made by Penny Mac and went into great detail, which you can read tomorrow, uh, about why. But basically, 
what they're saying is that the bank strategy, which has been hugely successful uh, in getting courts to rule based on inferences and presumptions without proving their right to foreclose, that strategy is now in great danger, and there's great hope for homeowners, at least in the district where the fourth DCA decision is law. Um, remember that an appellate decision uh, is only uh, law or uh, mandatory in the district which it has jurisdiction. It's persuasive on other jurisdictions and even other states, but it's not uh, mandatory uh, that a trial judge follow it. Uh, but the logic in the uh, Penny Mac versus Frost case is really very difficult to overcome, and because they were simply applying the law, and the at the root of it is the very simple proposition: Is there a creditor to stand up before the court and say that they are entitled to enforce the alleged obligation under the so-called note? And the answer, as I have been saying, in most of the foreclosure cases is the resounding no. Uh, and this was identified back in 2007 uh, in a Fordham Law Review article entitled, Will the Real Holder in Due Course Please Stand Up? And the issue was obvious. If the parties to the foreclosure were merely being used as sham conduits, then it follows that the foreclosure cannot proceed and should not proceed, and that somewhere someone was the real creditor raising the extreme moral hazard where the foreclosing parties were denigrating the collateral and eliminating the protections that the creditor expected in the form of a true note and a true mortgage. My position since the very beginning of this, when I started writing 10 years ago, has been that there is no such thing in the world of securitization as a true note and true mortgage. And the only reason why that is not popular conception of, uh, of this scheme is that trial judges put the burden on the borrower to prove a negative instead of putting the burden on the servicer or the trustee or whoever it was that was named, frankly, by LPS uh, as the foreclosing party. So with that teaser, I will move on. Um, and uh, anyone with questions, we will try to field. I'm broadcasting live from Devout County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 202-838-6345, which is our new uh, main number, 
and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, if my other work on the blog has value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. So, that said, uh, welcome Charles Marshall and welcome Patricia Rodriguez. Yes, hey Neil, great to be on again. Hi guys, it's great to hear you guys' voice and same for me. All right, so um, the uh, well, let's start with you, Patricia, because you know you've been on a few times, but we never uh, in recent times we haven't gone over what your firm does. Uh, uh, what is the Rodriguez Law Group? Well, really what we know and what we specialize in is litigation against alleged creditors or alleged lenders on first lien mortgages. And so we have a vast knowledge and understanding of the workings of litigating against them to negotiate to a resolution of this very strong dispute where one party thinks they're owed hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars and the other party believes that they owe them nothing and usually rightfully so because there's some third-party entity at the end of a chain of title that's all kinds of broken, um, but then you get into the legalities of it here in the state of California, and you find that the courts are very, very pro-bank and very much so, you know, looking to find a basis in their favor. So you need to be very apt to the different claims that typically universally are only going to get you in court versus the claims that are going to get you uh, some type of resolution, whether it be a short sale, a short pay, a modification, or some type of uh, better walk away that you would have had if you hadn't litigated. All right. So you basically uh, uh, handle, as far as foreclosure matters is concerned, uh, everything from litigation to settlement to modification and short sales and all that stuff. Right, exactly. And we start from the beginning to the end with the client, you know, and at minimum they're going to get the benefit of residing in the property for less than they would pay to live somewhere comparable um, by paying the attorney fees that are going to be less than what they would pay to live somewhere comparable. And that difference, 10 months two years, three, four years later is their benefit in having done the litigation at minimum um, because for, a lot, for all of them, you know, they've already uh, gone into foreclosure. They can't afford the payment and they're in default. So even if they could afford the payment, they can't go back to making the payment. So in order to even be able to reside and stay in the property, uh, short of them being foreclosed on non-judicially, they need to start some type of litigation where they can record that lawsuit against the property. And each case is looked at individually on its facts to see how strong or weak the case is, if they even have a case. You know, in a couple percent out of 100, they're not going to have a case. And the best thing they can do is just walk away from the property now. 98% of the time, the bank has done something improper, something wrong, while 
managing that loan either from origination or servicing or selling of the loan on the second market. And so that's really where we come in to analyze those claims and to determine, you know, the viability of them and then to give the borrower, the homeowner, some feedback on how probable it is that they can, you know, resolve these disputes through this litigation and what it is that they can do while in litigation. I'd like to underline, and uh, Charles, you can weigh in on this too, uh, the fact that each case, no matter how similar, has differences. And the uh, often I've heard from people, well, I got a friend or my brother Joe uh, also had a case with Deutsche Bank, and and he won. You know, why can't I or why can't I do the same thing as he did? And the answer uh, is as wide as, well, Joe's in another state, first of all. And second of all, Joe got a lawyer early in his case, and you're at the end of a bunch of procedural things that are that basically have to be the subject of an attack of some kind to undo it. Um, And um, uh, there is a difference from even judge to judge or even the same judge, depending upon exactly how the case was presented and various human factors that enter into the trial scenario. So um, I, I think it's important people to know that their case is never precisely identical to anyone else's, uh, but I also encourage those people uh, uh, who are interested to pursue uh, 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 to, pursue, to, to pursue an attack on the on a particular bank or whatever, and see if they can pool their resources either informally or formally, because it's pretty hard to litigate these things against a bank that has a bottomless purse. So, um, uh, Charles, you have anything to add to that? I do. You you had mentioned. Uh, you know, in your presentation just now, you had mentioned various other factors. Those factors are actually key. I mean, one of the things I often say when discussing this, either on this radio show or anywhere else, is as in law, so in life, as in life, so in law. And what that means is there's a variability. There's even a statistical variability. And you can be dealing with similar servicers, sales trustees, even the same attorneys on the other side in a big firm and yet you can end up in a very different negotiating posture case to case, and that's simply because life has a a huge amount of variability. And statistically, when you plot that out, even if you line up a lot of commonality, it doesn't mean it's going to play out the same way. So all borrowers need to really keep that in mind, that there there are a number of different ways that, that something can play out, but there are predictable variables to an extent, and there are likely results to an extent. 
but variances to that can and do happen all the time, and borrowers just need to appreciate that. I think Patricia laid out really well the litigation process and and what to expect generally. The Liz pendants absolutely makes a big deal. And then when cases go south, which they sometimes will, particularly given the state of law in California, you know, most cases will settle. I believe that's true, you know, in Patricia's practice as well. But sometimes there'll be a dismissal before settlement. And if you take a case up on appeal, you can often get a result that you weren't able to get before the trial court. And having that yeah. Liz Pendens on having that Liz Pendens on is a big deal because it, it makes it very difficult for the servicer to sell the property, half less be able to even market it for sale. And the Liz Pendens is, is not just proper, but it's I, I always argue it's legally required because all these foreclosure lawsuits that we're talking about, they all impact title and therefore under the California Civil Code, a Liz Pendens is not just, you know, a bonus. It's legally expected. Exactly. And, and I think that, uh, well, I think you made a number of good points. Uh, let me move on, though. Um, Patricia, um, two questions that I know you've heard and that I've heard and Charles has heard. Um, uh, I think need to be addressed. Uh, one is something that we've talked about before, client expectations, uh, the homeowner's expectations of, of what their superhero, the lawyer, can do. Uh, but the, the other two questions, well, I'll start with one. Um, how can clients hurt their case? Well, I think there's two extremes to the spectrum on that, in that they can either be really, really non-responsive and just very difficult to get in contact with and or wait till the very last minute with this expectation that you're going to be able to do weeks, months worth of work in a two-day period. Um, and then when it doesn't go in their favor, kind of wonder why that is the case. Uh, that's the one extreme. Then the other extreme is the one who thinks they are the lawyer, who thinks that they've researched everything on Google and they've, you know, handled their one case or they did a tax case in some other context, and so now they're an expert when it comes to this litigation. And it takes more than just knowledge here, you know. Like you guys were saying, I completely 100% agree. It, there are so many variables involved, and one of the main variables is opposing counsel. Who is the other lawyer on the other side? And have you built and fostered a positive relationship or have you built and fostered a negative relationship? Or do you have a relationship at all? Like have you even been in this industry long enough where you can say like, yeah, I've gone up against that law firm. Yeah, I've settled X amount of cases with that law firm. Um, that heavily factors into how much they're willing to do or not do. Um, and, and so with all of that, someone who – hasn't done these cases for years and is in pro per doing it themselves or maybe themselves and on two different properties even, they really don't have as much perspective to 
really have a clear understanding of what to expect. Like Charles said, in California, the law is so unfavorable toward borrowers. The people that come in with this expectation that this is just going to be a slam dunk, like, okay, we're going to file one piece of paperwork and everything's going to stop and you're not going to have to pay a mortgage again, and that's just not realistic. Well, that's true. But I would say that the worst thing that a client can do to their case is to ignore it until it's either too late or virtually too late. If I had to identify two things that cause losses for homeowners in foreclosure litigation, it would be that they waited um, until something already happened that now has to be undone, or that they thought that they could handle it themselves when, in fact, the servicer, the the representatives of the so-called servicer in a call center basically following a script that's meant to lead them down a rabbit hole. And it, it it is a constant source of amazement, I guess, to, for me, that for the largest investment in these people's lives, um, they don't get a lawyer. They didn't get a lawyer, I understand they were told not to, but they didn't get a lawyer when they signed the documents. I mean, I remember, you know, uh, many years ago when I used to do a lot of transactional work, people would come into me and they'd show me a document and they'd say, we want your opinion on this. And the first thing I would do is look at the last page and I'd say, my opinion is you signed it. Get out of here. There's nothing I can do. So the, the the point I'm making here is that I think people need to understand, as you said, Patricia, that a Google search is not the same as going to law school for three years and working for three, five, ten, or in my case, 40 years as a trial lawyer. It's just not the same, and it won't ever be the same. Yes, Google is a great tool. I use it myself. But it is different. And I think that you're right about, you know, them hurting their case uh, in a variety of other ways. But my uh, primary gripe is... And when people come to me, and I don't really take cases anymore uh, to try, but uh, they come to me for guidance and, you know, for consult. Um, I I find myself uh, uh, in, uh, in awe of what they thought they were doing without having attempted at any time to seek the advice of an actual lawyer. And, you know, it's not even necessarily a lawyer who knows foreclosure, although that's obviously preferable. But there are a lot of procedural things that are happening in court if they file uh, for a TRO in the non-judicial states or 
they have to file a defense in the judicial states. And, you know, uh, I've called myself a legal proctologist because most of my work is undoing the damage that has been done. So I don't know if you have a comment on that. That's my personal view. I don't want it attributed to you. Oh, I have a quick comment on that, Neil, and Patricia might have her own ideas on this as well. Uh, one thing I would say, it's not so much in defense of borrowers, but it's just giving, I think, a fuller perspective in terms of the range of everything that's out there. Um, I certainly don't sign off on, you know, the, 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 the public imagery uh, uh, treating lawyers like bottom feeders. On the other hand, like most stereotypes and cliches, there are too many predatory attorneys out there, no matter who they say they're representing. And I think that's a real problem. So I think for a lot of borrowers, they've already been stung, maybe multiple times, by attorneys who didn't have their best interest at heart, who maybe that's took retainers from them and did very little work or did bad work. And unfortunately... You know, I think is well-intentioned and with the integrity that all three of us have collectively and individually, we have this backdrop of a lot of shoddy legal work being done out there. And it's a, I'm just saying it's understandable that people are gun-shy about dealing with attorneys they don't know, but the reality is, you know, you're in a metaphorical life-and-death situation with these servicers and sales trustees. So... You have to seek and get good legal advice, even though there are some bad attorneys out there, far too many, in my opinion. But it's like anything else. You have to look beyond that, and you have to get beyond that. So, all right. I would say say on that note, though, though, too, like as good attorneys in this area of practice, we almost have to be gung-shy about the uh, clients we take on because every client – Uh, isn't the exemplary client. Some people really were real estate agents and they have a vast knowledge of the system and all they're really trying to do is manipulate it, even when it comes to their attorney. And then sometimes clients just are holding on to this toxic asset so tightly that they can't accept when they lose it to a fraudulent bank or there's an illegal sale, they want to blame the last person in line. And so this is why I'm always saying, like, you have to be realistic about your expectations of what this person is supposed to be doing for you. This person is supposed to be doing all of the work by all means that they've contracted to do, but the outcome and the result is far outside of our hands where we cannot be held to be responsible for that. That's why we're not guaranteeing any of our work, you know. So um, I think that's really key and important, and I agree that burying your head in the sand leads you to counsel that isn't going to be very good or counsel that's under uh, – you know, timetable that they can't perform as well as they would if you had taken initiative to resolve the issue at the early stages. You know, um, sure, that makes sense. Not not so long ago, my point being here that the you have to be smart as a homeowner and uh, and and alert and and not have your head in the ground. But I had somebody come to me. Uh, nice guy, I like him, but he wanted to fight the uh, foreclosure 
on a modestly priced dwelling that was uh, condemned because it was sinking because there was a sinkhole that was taking multiple houses. And, I mean, I refused to take the case. Um, I said, what in the world do you want to fight for here? And, I mean, your house is literally sinking away. So, and they had offered him cash for keys and stuff like that. So you have to approach this intelligently. Yes, is it, in that case, if they get the house, uh, are they accomplishing something that's probably illegal and even criminal? Yes. But the point is not how bad they are, but how much of your life you want to tie up in a case that's not going to produce anything for you. So let's go to the other side, Patricia, and I'll ask you how clients can help their case. Well, I think the number one thing is exactly what we've been talking about, but it's finding a lawyer that you trust, someone that you are confident and comfortable with that you're going to allow to really do the job and make sure that you are properly represented and that you can communicate well with. And I think, again, you know, just being communicative, always turning over all the notices that you receive um, and just keeping your attorney, you know, up to date with information without overloading the attorney and double checking and, you know, um, second guessing, you know, what they're saying. And then I think the number one way clients help themselves is at the end of all of that process, is because they found someone that they trust and someone that they feel comfortable with, that they are been working well with, when the attorney recommends like a certain course, for instance, for a client who's um, been reviewed three or four times, who's gone through multiple litigations and ultimately has been denied each and every time, and the attorney's saying, okay, your house is sinking, there's a hole in it, now is the time to let it go and let it sink before you sink with it you know, not taking that advice and saying, no, 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 I just, you know, I want to keep this particular property, even though there's hundreds of thousands of equity I could, you know, take out, I'm going to go ahead and just keep fighting an uphill battle that I'm sliding back on. So I think, again, it's just finding an attorney that you trust and really trusting the process, trusting the attorney, and ultimately being able to assess, like, your cost-benefit analysis, you know, and your risk. And I guess ultimately being able to recognize what your sunk costs are that there's certain things that have already cost you money. Those costs are gone, and getting new money from the lawsuit or from the property isn't even going to give you back the money you lost because that money has already been lost. That's just new money you're getting. So recognizing your sunk costs and letting them go at a point where you're not going to recover them anymore. That answer is an example of what I tell people to look for an attorney. If the attorney, uh, Patricia, you just gave a very clear uh, explanation uh, of, uh, of the situation. If the attorney cannot clearly explain what defenses are available to you, and by clearly, I mean they get you to understand it, uh, 
up to a point, you know, uh, in terms of uh, really technical legal stuff, then obviously you're not trained for that. But if the attorney can't explain it to you such that you understand it, like how Patricia was just talking about, you know, a uh, an example case, then there's a good chance they're not going to be able to explain it or persuade a judge. So a good rule of thumb is, it's good rule of thumb for any deal. If you don't understand it, get out of there. If you're relying on the seller for information um, and you're not clear yourself how this thing's going to work, whether it's an investment or hiring an attorney, which is a form of investment, don't do it. Not unless you understand what's going on. And the other thing I would add and that I tell clients to do, and only a few of them do it, is create a journal from your records and keep it from the point where you started it and time, date, every event having anything to do with the possession or title uh, of the house or anything in litigation, bankruptcy, what have you. That journal might actually end up being evidence in court. And this, the same loose interpretation uh, of business records could conceivably apply to, uh, to the journal depending upon how it's set up. But even if it's not, it can be used in court to refresh the recollection of, uh, of a homeowner and so forth who's nervous, testifying, can't remember everything at all at the same time. Um, the journal really helps. And who else does it help? I'm sure Patricia and Charles will tell you exactly who, who else it helps. It helps them. It's only by reading that journal that they get a feel for what's happening and something and, and a feel for uh, some things about the client or prospective client. And the more organized you are and the, more, and the better your records are, the easier it's going to be for the lawyer to represent you. So if you come in with a shoebox or a, a uh, pantry box, uh, full of documents, um, don't be surprised when the lawyer says, or gives you a higher retainer necessary for your representation than he did to your neighbor who came in with really good records, a nice journal, a chronology of everything that occurred, because that might only be a half an hour or an hour time to get up to speed, even less sometimes. But the box full of unopened envelopes with end-of-month statements and things like that, that's several hours and maybe longer. Um, uh, certainly without a journal, it would be longer. So 
I would say if you want to help your case, consider all of the factors that we just discussed and um, and get into it. A lot of people come to me and other lawyers, and I'm sure this is true for Patricia and Charles, and they want to just dump it into the lap of a lawyer because they don't want to think about it. They're ashamed or whatever. And they just want the lawyer to go make it right. Well, first of all, that goes to the problem that uh, Patricia was talking about, which is if the lawyer can't get in touch with you or can't get cooperation from you, you might as well not hire a lawyer because a lawyer can't do anything. They can't make this stuff up. They can only work with what is. So actually, I'll shut up because we're coming to a close. Uh, Patricia, uh, any comment to what I just said? Hello? Yes. Yeah, um, it looks like I had your blog coming up at the same time, uh, so I wasn't sure if that was our cue that we were all done. Um, but, no, I'm just in agreement with everything you said in regards to they definitely want to come to you and just drop it on your lap. But, you know, everything we've said here is taken to heart will certainly help the borrower in finding recourse in all of this. Charles? Uh, what you emphasized about the narrative is is gold information because every good case needs a narrative. Sometimes it's absolutely critical to settlement. It will always get a bigger settlement if you have a good one. And contemporaneous notes can, all, can, can be introduced into any phase of evidence, including trial, including discovery, and it will help sharpen and hone the narrative for the attorney. And that means the attorney will be able to better explain the case in any proceeding, in a deposition, and a trial. Those are all priceless uh, advantages that the narrative that you describe, you can get that narrative from taking contemporaneous notes. It's a big deal. Yes, it is. Uh, and And... The, the narrative helps everybody stay on the same page, uh, but there has to be agreement on the narrative. So, for example, if you have somebody, uh, if you have a homeowner on the witness stand and the whole defense was resting on the fact that the case was settled, which often happens, and then, like, between City Mac and... I mean, City and Pennymac. City will agree to some modification or settlement, and and then Pennymac will jump in and say, "Well, we don't agree. We're you know we're the successor, which isn't true." Um, if you've got a situation uh, uh, like that, then you've got uh, uh, you've got to be consistent on the stand. And if the witness on the stand is asked, well, did, uh, did that mean that you thought you had a settlement and, and a, a deal? And the witness says, well, I don't know. There were still some things that I wanted to negotiate. Your case is... 
So uh, the narrative that I'm talking about, the journal, the contact with, with lawyers, these all sound like mundane things and even boring, but they are what is necessary for a successful outcome in litigation. The Rodriguez Law Group can be reached at 626-888-5206. And you, you can also, uh, on, on my blog, you can uh, press their link. Uh, they've got an online form. Charles, thank you, as always, for co-hosting. And Patricia, thank you again for appearing as our guest. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.